Let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Before we light the candles, before we wish each other Merry Christmas and go to the various events that we're going to go to tonight, family and friends, I'd like for us to focus just on two words which perfectly explain why Jesus came to earth. And they're here in this text in Luke 2, and then we're going to look in just a moment at Luke chapter 1. But when this huge group of angels all appeared to the shepherds, and when the sky lit up on that dark night, and they heard them praising God and glorifying God, they say that Jesus was born. And that because Jesus was born, that there would be peace on earth. Would you look at the text in Luke chapter 2 and verse 10? The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Say the word with me. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now we've heard that last sentence. I can't even count how many times. But what struck me again as I studied it is how unusual that statement is. How could the angels make that declaration when everything about the world argues to the contrary? We saw a couple weeks ago Israel's history, and we know that there was no peace in Israel's history from the time that they were in captivity for hundreds of years in Egypt to when they opposed God and were in strife and struggle in the wilderness and then entered the land and fought and had civil wars between them and constantly fought against the Philistines and then were taken into captivity, divided as a nation, going to two separate foreign nations, refusing to follow the Lord. Even when they were back partially in the land in Luke chapter 2, the Romans were there occupying. So there was no peace to be had. There was no calmness. There was no joy to be had. And we certainly know the history of the world. From Cain and Abel all the way down, there's never been peace. It's a desire, it's talked about, but that's not happening tonight. And the record of regional wars and the record of world wars even continues to this moment, not to mention terrorism and crime and the constant division that is in every sector of society in every country. And it's not just here in the States, it's not just the crisis that we see, it's uh, in France with the riots that are going on, it's in the United Kingdom with Brexit, it's in Germany with terrorism, it's in every facet, certainly the Middle East tonight, is in great conflict and tension. So how can there be, really, let's ask this tonight, how can there be any hope of peace, even now? How is there any sense that peace could happen? And, and honestly, it hit me last night. Do people even want it anymore? You know, it's a cottage industry now to, to talk about conflict. Uh, the TV talk shows, the news shows, they thrive on that, right? I can't even listen to it anymore. Everybody's yelling at each other, talking over top of each other, and, and that's how they sell ads. That's how they get people to watch. 
Social media thrives on conflict, thrives on controversy, thrives on tension. And politicians certainly manipulate it, right? Conflict, lack of peace, tension, stress. Maybe peace isn't desirable for people anymore. Maybe that's not really what we want. Maybe there's some kind of weird catharsis that we have in not having peace. And yet, as we listed yesterday morning, there's strong evidence that so many people are trying to find peace. They're trying to find comfort. They're trying to find some kind of contentment and satisfaction, and they're looking in the wrong places. Drugs and alcohol and materialism and, and deviant sexual relationships and anything else that we can look at. Peace is elusive tonight. And yet, look at the angel's message. God says, I'm sending a Savior. And he's coming in the form of a baby. And he is the only way you will ever have peace. He's the only way. So as we've asked over the last three weeks, what would it mean if that hadn't happened? If Jesus had not come, if there was no baby on the manger, if that night was silent like every other night, and heaven has done nothing to help us, then mankind has no hope. The baby is the only hope. And Ephesians 2 says Jesus came to save us, and that was God's gift of salvation to anybody who believes. That there's no other way, there's no work we can do, there's not enough on a resume to get us saved. The angels say his salvation is the only hope, and it's the only thing that will bring peace. It will restore peace between us and God, and it will renew peace between us and each other. Of course, for peace, both sides have to be in an absence of conflict. Both sides have to agree. If I've got conflict with my wife or conflict with my kids or conflict with one of you, and we disagree on something and we can't come to a conclusion and we fight and we're opposed to each other, there's no way there's going to be peace. Some of you are dreading maybe going to the family dinner because you know there's going to be tension. There's not going to be an atmosphere of peace. And that's real and that's visceral. And, and those factors, that, that conflict, that tension destroys any sense of peace. So how does Jesus coming here accomplish peace? Because it's irrefutable that every one of us is a sinner. There's nobody that can argue, well, I've never done anything wrong. But, but I've been pretty good. But the Bible says if you offend one point of the law, you've offended the whole thing. You're guilty of all of it. So each one of us is guilty. And because we're proud, and because we hate to admit that we're wrong, and we're, we, we come to the place where we hear we've got to confess your sins, for he's faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you all of righteousness, we say, I don't want to really want to do that. I don't want to be accountable to God for my lack of goodness. I don't want to have to confess that to God. So we come back to the question, how could the angels say, well, God will be pleased with us. God will be at peace with us. How could that happen? Well, the answer to that that we're going to see tonight shows the unimaginable love and grace of God. The way God reconciles that, the way God solves that, shows that his love and his mercy transcend everything. Because knowing God is holy, it is logical then that when we offended him and we broke his law, 
that he has every right to judge us. He has every right to punish us. He has every right to send us to hell. Nobody can argue that he doesn't have that right because he is God. It's not unfair. It's what he should do. Our sin has separated us from him. Our sin has incited conflict and broken the relationship with him. And he is justified in every sense to eternally discipline us and punish us for that. Which is why when we come back to this text, it is so wonderful and so powerful. Because Jesus came to offer us salvation. He came to deliver us from that. And if you'll go back just about 15 verses into chapter 1, the Holy Spirit explains why and how Jesus accomplished this. Start in verse 68 of chapter 1. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. I'm sorry, I read the wrong verse. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Go to verse 77. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now in this passage, Zacharias, who is a priest, is praising God because God just told him you're going to have a son. Even though Zacharias is very old, his wife hasn't been able to have children. She's way past the age of getting pregnant. But God says, you're going to have a son, and that son is going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one who tells people about the Messiah who's coming. And Zechariah praises the Lord, and then he prophesies about John the Baptist and about Jesus. And in these four verses we just read, he makes four statements. Four statements that detail the actions of God that literally change our lives. And I'm going to take just like two minutes on each one tonight, and then we're going to light our candles and say good evening. But please notice four things that God has communicated us. First of all, look at verse 68. It says that Jesus visited us and accomplished redemption. Redemption's the second word, and you don't have peace without redemption. So God came and accomplished redemption. Now, the fact that the God of all creation was not only willing to come here and, and be among us, but also to condescend himself and come as a baby, to take the form of man as a baby, and to lay aside his, our, his rights and to become one of us is nothing less than amazing, that God would do that. But then he goes 10 steps further than that. And he says, not only am I going to come live among you, not only am I going to condescend and be a baby, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your guilt on me. I'm going to take the weight and punishment and penalty of your sin on me, and I am going to willingly allow myself to be tortured and mutilated and put to death by my creation. And I'm going to do that, and I'm going to be a sacrifice in order to save you. Now we've heard that, right? So many times. That if we're going to be very honest, we might be a little dulled to that. 
and we get kind of excited and passionate about it when it's Christmas and when it's Easter, but in the middle of May, in the middle of September, the news about the baby and the angels and the shepherds, that seems way far off, and we kind of get a little bit dulled about the fact of what God has accomplished. But I want you to go back to verse 68, and I want you to see that word. He has accomplished redemption. That word literally means deliverance from bondage and the penalty by the paying of a ransom. So in order for Jesus to accomplish redemption for us, he became the ransom. He became the payment for our sin. And because his sacrifice was perfect, that is the only thing, that is the only thing that can deliver us from the penalty of sin. Without Jesus, we are left holding a spiritual bag of nothing. We have nothing. We have nothing we can present. We have nothing we can say. And the Bible says our works rust and corrupt. But even if that wasn't the case, our works will never, ever be enough to get us to satisfy God's perfect holiness. So that night in Bethlehem, look back at it. As he's visiting us, he's coming for the express purpose of accomplishing redemption. Now look at the second thought, verse 77. It says that Jesus came to give us the knowledge of our sin. The knowledge of our sin. Now you say, well, I don't really want to know about my sin. I know I'm a sinner and I don't really want to think about it. But but before we look at how he gives us this awareness, we have to understand that in order to be redeemed, in order for that payment to be made, in order for his grace to pour out upon us, we first have to admit, we first have to confess that we are in sin. Because unless you acknowledge it, unless you declare, yes, I am wrong, there's no point in going on. God's not just going to say, well, I'm just going to forget about it. I'm going to look the other way. It's, it's just all going to be done. I'll just, I'll cover it. No, he's holy. He can't just dismiss it. There has to be some kind of payment and penalty for it. And this is, I believe, and maybe it's for you tonight, the greatest stumbling block to you trusting in Christ, the greatest stumbling block to salvation is that we're not the center of the universe and we are guilty. And many people tonight, maybe it's you. I hope it's not, but if it is, I pray you'll change. Maybe you're saying, well, I don't want to hear that, Paul. I don't want to hear that I'm a sinner. I don't want to hear that I'm accountable to God. Listen, we're not God. We can barely get through the day without looking to Google to find out information. So tell me how we're God's. Tell me how we're in control. So what did he come to do? Look back at verse 77. He came to give us knowledge because the devil blinds the heart of man and we're complicit in being blind and that knowledge is best understood by comparison and contrast and Jesus provides that comparison and contrast by forgiving us when we compare ourselves to Jesus who was perfect and holy and withstood every temptation and then turned and took our sins upon himself that, that we deserve to hold. We deserve to be on the cross, not him. When we compare ourselves to him, it's not hard to see that we are completely inept spiritually. We're completely worthless spiritually. Then when you contrast our sinful lives against God's requirements for acceptance, because he says you have to have a perfect, pure, and humble heart. You have to obey every single letter of the law 
that's not even worth discussing because there's no way we're ever going to be anywhere close to that. So he says, I came to make you aware that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior. And I want to encourage you and I tonight to take a very honest look at our lives. I know it's Christmas Eve. I know we don't want to think about this. We just want to go eat and have fun and open presents. But just for a minute, just for a minute, are you blaming others for your failure? Or are you owning up to your responsibility? Are you, are you willing to confess that your sin exempts you from earning salvation? And are you willing to say to the Lord, please forgive me? You came to show me that I'm a sinner, and I understand that I'm a sinner, and the only way I am going to be forgiven is through you. See, because forgiveness is never merited. There's absolutely no way that you and I tonight can earn salvation. That's why he says it's a gift. It's a gift to every single person it's offered. God says, here is the gift. You can be redeemed. You can be forgiven. You can be cleansed. You can be changed forever. I will adopt you. I will claim you as my own. And you will have eternal life forever if you trust in me. The fact that he does that is remarkable because it shows how merciful God is. He doesn't have to do that. He answers to nobody. Nobody can stake a claim tonight that they are God. Nobody can stake a claim that they are greater than him. He's holy and he's just and he doesn't have to be merciful. But please understand tonight, that's exactly what he is. And that word, merciful, that God is merciful, it means to show kindness toward those who are miserable and afflicted. And that's what sin does to us. It makes us miserable and afflicted. So God's mercy through Jesus Christ isn't blind to the truth of who we are. He doesn't just overlook our failure. He still demands that somebody has to pay, that there has to be a price fulfilled. But look back for a second in your Bibles at verse 78. It says, because of the ten tender mercy of our God. That word struck me this year. The tender mercy of God. You know what the word tender there means? It means from the gut. It means literally in the Greek, your bowels. And you say, well, that's kind of disgusting on Christmas Eve, thinking about somebody's bowels. But what it means is where the heart of your emotions is. You know how you say when you feel something in your gut, you, you feel it here, it, it's right there, it's just right inside. The Bible says that God's mercy is tender. It's in the gut. It's where the feelings and the compassion and the love are all rooted. So even as the holy, righteous judge who can justifiably send us to hell, the Bible says that his love for us, out of his being, out of his gut, it was compelling him to show us mercy that we did not deserve. And he accomplished that by visiting us. And bringing redemption to us. That's why Philippians 2 says he humbled himself and took the form of a man. Setting aside his rights and bearing our shame. And look at the last thought in verse 79. 
Why did he do this? Well, his purpose was to shine the light of truth and life on us. You know what sin does? Sin puts us in complete spiritual darkness. It puts us in a place of death and devastation and darkness that we don't want to think about. We don't want to acknowledge. We kind of dismiss it. It's not that big a deal. It's not taking me down the wrong path. But, but this is why the setting of Luke 2 is not coincidental. Jesus didn't come in the middle of the day. He came at night. The shepherds, we saw it yesterday. They're, they're sitting out in the field. And it's dark. There's not much going on. It's very quiet. It's, again, a metaphor, I think, for our human condition. And all of a sudden, the angels come with a bright light. And they stand. And the angel stands before them with the glory of God surrounding him. And they can't even look. They're, they're, they're so blinded by the presence of God. And then after he talks, the whole heaven, the whole sky is full of light. That's the message that God is sending. You're in darkness, but you can live in light. This is the confidence that we have of trusting Jesus Christ as Savior. That in him was life, and the life was the light of all men. The light shines in darkness. Oh, we saw it at the start in the video. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness cannot overtake it. The darkness cannot overtake it. That spiritual light he offers, we're going to represent it in a couple minutes. We're going to turn off the lights, and there's just going to be this one candle. And then the light is going to spread, and that's the picture of what Christ has done. Look at the last phrase in verse 79, and we'll pray. He came to shine upon those who sit in darkness, shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of, tell me the word, peace. We're back to that word again. In other words, Jesus brought peace to restore us, to shine light on our sin, to get us to understand that we're a failure spiritually, but he will come and he will reconcile us to God. He will restore us. He will bring us back into the right relationship with God. And when he does that, we will be at peace. So let me ask you tonight, are you at peace with God? Does the peace of God fill your heart and your mind because you trust in Christ as Savior? I can't think of a more quiet, calm, peaceful moment that we're going to have in the next 24 hours than what we're going to do in just a minute as this room transforms from darkness to light. And I want to ask you tonight, very sincerely, does that represent your life? Does it represent your life? Is it full of light and is it full of peace and is it full of life? Because there's nothing greater. There's no present you will receive tomorrow. I don't care how good it is. I don't care if it's that Lexus that we talked about yesterday morning. There is nothing, there is nothing that is going to bring you joy and contentment and peace than the grace of God. Nothing. So if you don't know him tonight, and you may not, I don't know all of you. If you don't know him tonight, I want to invite you to trust him right now. To admit to him, I am a sinner walking in darkness and I accept, Jesus, your offer to forgive me and to cleanse me and to change me forever. And if that's you, if you're sitting there saying, yeah, Paul, that's, that's where I am tonight. Listen, I'm not going anywhere after the service. 
And no dinner, no celebration, nothing you're going to do tonight is any more important than that. So before you leave, when the candles go out and everybody takes off, before you leave, come up and we will be here. We'd love to talk to you about that. We would love for today to be your spiritual birthday. That you will trust Christ as your Savior because he came to redeem you. And if you know him, and I praise the Lord tonight that I do and that many of you do, as you light those candles, as the room gets brighter, thank him and praise him that he has come to be the light of the world. He has come to visit us and accomplish redemption and put us at peace with God.